Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Today, we're going to be talking to a guy by the name of Scott Horton. He's a libertarian. I believe he's involved with, you said, antiwar.com. Yep. He's the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of antiwar.com, host of the Scott Horton Show, and has a lot of deep knowledge on the history and the current conflict, Israel's war on Gaza. So we want to talk to him all about that. Yeah. And I think that stuff is really interesting because people generally have like a very foggy idea the further back you go, what's going on with Israel. You know, once you get to... First of all, I don't know what percentage of people even know about the partition plan in the right. late 1940s. But like, what about once you get before that and you start talking about the founders of Zionism in like the early 1900s? So I want to do like a good, dry retelling of history uh, from the very beginning of Zionism. And I think that'll be very helpful for people in terms of understanding the current conflict. Absolutely. I've, the more I have learned about that era, the more useful it has been for me understanding the entire project of Zionism and how we got to where we are today. Yeah, because a lot of people see it as like pure good, pure evil, almost like a like World War II Nazi situation where it's like, well, obviously those guys are the bad guys and everybody agrees to that. It's actually way more complicated when it comes to Israel-Palestine, and there's a lot of stuff that people don't know, but we're going to be happy to dive into all that. So uh, before we do that, though, there was a little bit of a tussle, some might say, or back and forth between Ryan Grimm yes. and Ted Cruz, which, by the way, I was surprised that they managed to get an interview. Like, Ryan got an interview with Ted Cruz. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's, so, that's like, so what? How'd that happen? Okay, so uh, Ryan and Emily Tashinsky, they co-host CounterPoints, um, you know, my colleagues over there. And Emily has a lot of contacts in the Republican Party world. Shame on her. She was able to secure Shame the, on her. the Ted Cruz interview. And he's promoting some book. I think it's called, like, Unwoke or something like that. Oh, wow. Real original. <laughs> so he's out trying to promote his book. So that's how they're able to end up with this interview. And um, Ryan obviously had some questions. Questions he wanted to ask him about his unconditional support for Israel, even as they're committing all of these atrocities in Gaza. Let's take a listen to a little bit of how that went. When you see leftists chanting from the river to the sea, that means from the Jordan River to the sea, it literally means obliterate the modern state of Israel because they hate Israel and they want to eliminate the only Jewish nation in the world that is racist and genocidal. Now, you asked earlier, would I ban that statement? No, I'd allow people to say it, you know. Uh, members of the squad have tweeted out from the river to the sea. But the answer, I, I'd allow him to say it, but I wouldn't sit there quietly. I'd point out yeah. that you are calling for, once again, the extermination of millions of right. Jews. As I'm sure you know, though, in Likud's platform, it says, you know, from the river to the sea, there will only be Israeli sovereignty. You know, are they suggesting genocide of all Palestinians? Of course not. Exactly. So if they're, if they're not, why is the other suggesting genocide? Be because that's what... Hamas support. I'm going to read to you a couple things that the, we've been hearing from the Israeli government. Uh, we've, we've had uh, Defense Minister uh, Gallant. We will eliminate everything. An IDF spokesperson. Our focus is on damage, not on precision. Uh, Agriculture Minister Avi Dichter. We are now rolling out the Gaza Nakba. Gaza Nakba 2023. That's how it'll end. Israeli Heritage Minister Amahai Elihu said a nuclear bomb is, quote, one of the possibilities. Uh, Finance Minister Bezalel Smotrich, we need sterile zones in the West Bank. Uh, Israeli President Isaac Herzog, it's an entire nation out there that is responsible. This rhetoric about civilians not aware, not involved, it's absolutely not true. They could have risen up. They could have fought against that evil regime. Another former Knesset member, there is one and only solution, which is to completely destroy Gaza before invading it. I mean destruction like what happened in Dresden and Hiroshima 
without nuclear weapons. Would you join us in condemning that as well? So I, I condemn nothing that the Israeli government is doing. I, I stand with the people of Israel, and let me explain. There is a qualitative difference. The Israeli government does not target civilians. They target military targets. The Israeli government has Why are they so bad at their targeting, then, if they're killing so, so, so many So civilians? they're actually not. They, they are, so then they are targeting. No, they're exceptionally good at... So what I love about that clip is that Ryan is asking the world's most obvious questions, and Ted Cruz is clearly, like, kind of caught off guard, and he's, uh, his way to handle it is just, like, total denial, right? So the from the river to the sea point. That's genocidal. How dare they say that? And Rodgram's like, well, the Likud platform says the same thing. He's like, it's perfectly fine. Right. It's like, wait, it's wait like, what? It's, it's either it either is or it isn't. But look, to Ted Cruz, he thinks like, no, all that land should be Israel. You know, he, he probably thinks the West Bank shouldn't be Palestinian. Gaza shouldn't be Palestinian either. In a certain sense, you know, conservatives like Ted Cruz, they have an easier time defending their position on uh, just unconditional support for Israel because they don't have to pretend like they care about human rights the way that Democrats do. And so there's just like, yeah, of course I support. I, I don't care if they're doing war crimes. I support everything that they're doing right now. But, like, how can you possibly say that? But, but there was also, but he also does lie like the Democrats do because there was just something that was the biggest lie I've ever heard in there, which is when he said, oh, Israel's only targeting military targets. <laughs> Ryan Grimm just read for you statements where they were like, we love targeting civilians. And he was like, oh, they don't target civilians. Yeah. And, and it's he, like, so even even he's lying. Even he's not like, I, I want to wipe out the civilian population and that's what they're doing. He's just lying about the nature of what they're doing. And just to put it in perspective for everybody, and all you know this, but there's been 20,360 Palestinians killed. Of those, according to Euromed Monitor, the human rights group, 18,940 of them are civilians. And over 8,000 of them are children. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, like, how can he just say such a It's insane. I mean, Ryan Grimm's comments were like, uh, we are going to do the new Nakba. And Ted Cruz is like, I, that's perfectly fine. I don't have anything wrong with that. It's like, do you not know what the Nakba is? Right. Well, and uh, I love how Ryan caught him, too, because he says, he says, oh, they're not they're not targeting civilians. They're just targeting, they're just military targets. And Ryan's like, well, then why are they so bad at their targeting if they're killing so many civilians? And then Ted Cruz is like, oh, no, actually, they're great at their targeting. So then they are targeting <laughs> civilians. No, no, no. He goes on to say they do more than even the U.S. military in making sure that civilians aren't targeted. We were just, I think you were shared on this new article that just came out about how they have intentionally ramped up the level of indiscriminate killing. It actually is discriminate. It is intentionally designed to wreak civilian death, to cause mass civilian death, because they want to send a message of shock and they want the civilian population to turn on Hamas. Like, this is intentional. It is true. They're good at targeting. They know exactly what they're doing. They've now been aided by these, like, AI, monstrous AI programs that help them to target residential homes, apartment high-rise buildings, schools, refugee camps, churches, mosques. And it's not like, oh, we did our best to avoid civilian casualties. It's like, no, we knew that baby was there. We knew that three-year-old was there. We knew that high-rise apartment building was filled with people at the time that we dropped that bomb. And we meant to do it that way. So to deny that reality, that is just to deny reality of what is actually unfolding here. But it, I mean, for someone like Ted Cruz, he just, he just does not care at all. There's not even an attempt to pretend like he really cares about this. He says, this, oh, yeah, they're most humane, et cetera, et cetera. But how can you just make this blanket statement of I support absolutely everything that Israel has done? It's, it's, it's genuinely embarrassing. Like, it's cuckish. He wouldn't even say that if, if, 
if we're doing a, a new mission in Iraq, for example, mm. he would be more critical of that, of the U.S. military, than he would be of the Israeli military. Right. It's it's like astonishing. And by the way, general rule of thumb for everybody, uh, of course, I've been saying for the longest time now that Israel is killing these civilians on purpose. How do I know that? Guys, it's over a 90% civilian death rate. That doesn't happen as an oopsie. Right. Like, you could kind of maybe see it if, like, one out of every 10 people, 10%, maybe you go, okay, they're trying, but, you know, they're missing, and one out of every 10 is not great, but I could see how maybe you're trying to target Hamas or whatever. Once you get into, like, two out of 10, it's like, now you're really pushing it. Three out of 10, four out of 10, and by the way, that's it. Hamas, is, Hamas targeted, I believe it was, 45% civilians, 55% military. So you're telling me the IDF has worse aim and worse human rights standards than Hamas? And it's like, no, they're doing it. Of course they're doing it on purpose. Right. Guys, they bombed, I mean, shit, uh, I would give you the list, but just think of every sort of civilian infrastructure you can come up with, right? UN buildings, schools, hospitals, uh, you know, apartment buildings, factories, ambulances, uh, health clinics. Like, it, it, what are we talking about here? Sewage treatment, I water, mean, all of it, all of it. I mean, northern Gaza is destroyed. It's uninhabitable. It is uninhabitable. Gaza City, home to more than a million people, completely uninhabitable. It's absolutely insane. I mean, even the New York Times was like, this is a scale of civilian death that we have not seen in modern history. Of course. The yeah. amount of women and children, women, just women and children, killed in the Gaza Strip thus far, understanding this military operation is far from over, the number killed thus far is equivalent to the number of civilians that we killed in all 20 years of Afghanistan. That's what we're talking about here. So it is, it's just astonishing. I mean, Ted Cruz, like, you know, this guy is the lowest of the low. Nothing should shock you. And yet the it worst. still is shocking to see such indiscriminate death, thousands of babies, children, women, the elderly, the entire Gaza Strip just, you know, devastated. And that's just dismissed and defended. Yeah. And if you don't if you don't sufficiently condemn Hamas, though, then you're a terrorist. If you're chanting for a ceasefire, then you're a terrorist sympathizer. You're a Hamas sympathizer, et cetera. And by the way, Mr. You know, uh, fiscal conservatives, uh, I'm going to watch our deficit and our debt and pinch every penny. That's who this yeah. guy is. And never would he say a word about, hey, maybe we shouldn't give tens of billions of dollars every year to Israel so they can carry out massacres like this. Never. He would lose it if you suggest, hey, maybe we shouldn't be giving Israel a tremendous amount of money and weapons. True, true. It's just, uh, it's just like, like, go go move there. Why don't you go represent Israel, you absolute cuck. Pathetic. All right. So now uh, we'll switch to something a little bit lighter here. But Elon Musk, I don't know why he does this, man. I don't know what. Why would he do this? It's embarrassing. So he goes and sits down for an interview. I guess it's with... Uh, what was a CNBC interview? No, this is New York Times, their deal book conference. Um, and the interviewer is Andrew Ross Sorkin, who's both with New York Times and CNBC. Oh, I see. That's okay. So they ran that. it yeah. on CNBC. It was a New York Times interview. So, okay, my advice to Elon, first of all, don't do it if you're good, if you're like a mess. You know what I'm saying? Like if you don't have your ducks in a row, you don't know how to present like a reasonable face to the world. Like sit it out, homie. <laughs> sit it out. Okay. No, <laughs> like, I mean, he would never do another interview again. <laughs> I know. This guy is, you could see how much he's coping and seething under the surface. You could tell it in this interview. So he sits down and of course he's going to get questions on what's been happening recently. Right. And what happened recently? There was a massive advertiser boycott. Advertisers are running away at a thousand miles an hour because Elon Musk casually said you have said the actual truth to somebody who is spreading like the great replacement theory and blaming jews 
Right. Right. Basically saying that they brought October 7th on themselves because they vote wrong in American elections. Yeah. (laughs) Insane. Insane. So anyway, uh, this guy, Andrew Ross Sorkin's interviewing him. And this this clip has gone rather viral. Take a look. Apology tour, if you will. This had been said online. There was all of the criticism. There was advertisers leaving. We talked to Bob Iger today. I hope today. they stop. You hope? Uh, don't advertise. You don't want them to advertise? No. What do you mean? If, if somebody's going to try to blackmail me with advertising, blackmail me with money, go fuck yourself. But go fuck yourself. <laughs> is that clear? I hope it is. Hey, Bob, if you're in the audience. Well, well, let me ask you then. That's how I feel. Don't advertise. Okay, so my favorite part, I don't know if you caught this, Crystal, is that when he says the go fuck yourself, Mm -hmm. audience, dead silent. Right. Like, just, you could hear a pin drop in that audience. Then he repeats it, like, begging for the crowd reaction. Like, I said, go fuck yourself. And you get, like, a smattering of, like, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> and it's like, it honestly looks like, this reminds me of when Trump was going around in 2016, and he was saying, Obama founded ISIS. He's the founder of ISIS. <laughs> and he said it so many times. And then there was huge media backlash, and he went out and said it again. And there was a certain point in time where it looked like, are you trying to lose? Like, it looks like you're trying to lose right now. That's the feeling I get watching Elon basically given all the advertisers a middle finger like you're giving them an excuse the ones that remain to run for the for the door right well he goes on to say there that you know if twitter fails and goes bankrupt it will be the advertisers fault as if they have some obligation to advertise on your platform that's absurd like you're mr genius businessman if you want to be able to do whatever the hell you want on twitter without facing any sort of consequences from advertisers who are just capitalists trying to figure out where to put their money where they're going to get the biggest bang for their buck come up with a business plan that isn't dependent on advertisers now he's tried that with this twitter blue thing which he also instantly like destroyed and made it so that people out of spite would never pay to be twitter blue members but it's insane to blame the advertisers as if they owe you their money. So that's number one. Number two, like, I would love it if, you know, he was, I would love the energy of the go F yourself to advertisers who I also find annoying and like wish that we weren't dependent on for our social media platforms and whatever, if it was actually in service of some kind of principle, but it's not, you know, the idea that he was any sort of service of spite. It's in service of just chaos. Um, The idea that he's any sort of beacon of free speech principles has been absurd now for so long. I mean, since the instant he bought the platform. But just in recent weeks, he banned the word decolonization. And from the river to the the sea. And from the river to the sea, which we were just discussing. So, Mr. Free Speech, give me a break. What I read this as wasn't just him being unhinged. I read it as intentional as like if Twitter Twitter is in dire financial straits, if they do file for bankruptcy or if they're facing some sort of like investor lawsuit over his mismanagement, this is his prebuttal. This is the case that he's going to make. It's not my fault. It's these advertisers and their boycotts running away. That's the reason why this fails, which is not really an effective legal argument. Maybe it's more of a PR argument ultimately. But that's what I see as this intentional laying out 
out of the case of why Twitter is such a mess and such a financial disaster. But nobody, literally nobody in the business world is going to agree with him. Nobody. And there's no court in America that would agree with him. Of course. Right? Maybe it's for, you know, the layman viewer mm-hmm. who maybe they'll shift the burden and blame the advertisers. But how, I mean, you have the right to say, I don't want to give money to your shitty platform. When you make really hectic decisions on a daily basis, I mean, yeah. they're test, they're floating this test, or they're doing a test somewhere with Twitter, where everybody has to pay for basic features. They're do- you want to know why he's doing that? Because he's so desperate for desperate. cash, cra- yeah. cash now. And so, like, that's a horrible idea. That's anti-free speech. You just brought up the, the one of the worst things he did: ban decolonization and from the river to the sea. This isn't the first time he did like a purge of opinions he doesn't like. Remember yeah. when he was banning all the journalists who were reporting on the feud he was having with the Elon Jet account? We woke up one day and there was like New York Times journalists and Washington Post journalists and Intercept journalists that were just kicked off. <laughs> Meanwhile, he's still, you know, uh, wrapping himself in the cloak of, of I believe in free speech. The saddest thing about this, ever, there's this view of Elon as he's such a genius. He's such a misunderstood genius. But if he took over Twitter, said absolutely nothing, literally just like cat got your tongue, nothing. Right. Yeah. And did nothing in terms of here are the policy changes I'm going to implement. Twitter would be fine right now. Yeah. And all of these advertisers who are on the fence would say, there's no downside here. Yeah. Let me go ahead and throw it in. And also, I love the fact that so he endorses somebody doing the great replacement theory, like (laughs) a genuinely anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. And then he's like shocked that is viewed as anti-Semitic. Right. And his reaction to that is like, well, what if I hate Palestinians and crack down on pro-Palestine free speech? You guys cool with that? And, and the ADL head was like, yeah, I'm good with that. Yeah, yeah, actually I am. And, and oh, Netanyahu. Flat, what a joke you are. And man. Netanyahu, by the way. I mean, Elon just got back, I guess, from oh. his big Israel trip. And he's wearing IDF dog tags in that video, number one. Number two, he's got this, like, weird leather jacket on that doesn't fit him right. That And somebody pointed out, what's the name of the, like, Tony Stark or something like that? I'm not a big superhero movie watcher, but he thinks he's, <laughs> he's like. He's looking at me for pop culture references. He thinks he's being, like, a. Uh, okay. Griffin says it's a shearling. It's like a shearling bomber jacket. So and, and so he thinks he's like, I'm going to be a, a superhero, tough guy, cool guy coming out here. And I'm going to bro. I'll tell I'll tell these advertisers. What's up? What's that? Oh, we just lost. We just lost 14 billion more dollars. What? What? <laughs> like, th- that's what's going to happen, man. That's what's going to happen. This is insane. The other thing I was thinking about is, you know, they brought in the CEO, Linda Yaccarino. Oh, God, that poor woman. Worst job in America. I I I don't have much sympathy because she had to know what she was getting into or else she's just an idiot. She came from NBC. She was like the head of advertising there. So she had all these relationships with blue chip companies and whatever. And the idea was she's going to come in and she's going to smooth over the relationships, make them feel comfy again, advertising on the platform. And whatever work had been done in that regard, I mean, Elon completely nukes it with his endorsement of the Great Replacement Theory. And then further, in case that wasn't a large enough detonation, has to go and tell all of them directly, go fuck yourself. I can only imagine what this has been like for her, what she must be thinking about this job that she decided she wanted to sign up for. And final point, even if even if he wants to dump Twitter and sell it, yeah. which I, I hope that's the case, why would you tank the value more on your way out the door, making it so that whatever you'd get would be less? That's what I don't understand. Because like this, that's the direction <clears throat> this is heading, is somebody else is going to own it and operate it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? He's going to dump it. But like, why would you put a middle, middle finger up to all your advertisers, the ones that remain on the way out the door? Giving them an excuse to say, okay, you told me to go fuck myself? Fine. I'm out. I'm out. Yeah, no problem here. I'm sure they're not getting any value advertising on the platform. Yeah, I mean, they're just looking for a place to put their advertisements. It's, you know, and yeah, a, a big cause of them fleeing the platform was his 
wild tweet about the Great Replacement Theory shit, but the whole he management endorsed Pizzagate the other day. Yeah, multiple <laughs> times, right? Wasn't he like going in multiple times? I don't know. He deleted and it eventually when it became. He posted a, a fake New York Post headline, and he was like, "Fuck, like that's even too far for me." Uh, and he deleted it. But yeah. this is also just symbolic or like representative of the fact that he is an incredibly wild and chaotic person, and that's been the case with all of the decisions that he's made, the business decisions he's made about the platform. So if you were already on the fence, and then he's pizza gating, great replacement theory. You're like, I, I don't need this. I don't need this. I don't need another like to wake up tomorrow and see what he's tweeted and what my advertisement is sitting next to on this platform. Now there are a million places where I can spend my money. So thanks, but no thanks. Um, and you know, he's degraded the quality of the platform overall. So even putting aside like the insane things that he tweets out, the business decisions themselves have been catastrophically bad for this whole enterprise. He's just a misunderstood genius and you don't see his brilliance. Yes, that's what it is. That's I'll what it is. Never understand. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Elon hater. All right, let's go ahead and get to Scott Horton. As I said, he's director of the Libertarian Institute, also host of the Scott Horton Show. And he's got a forthcoming book coming out called Provoked, How Washington Started the New Cold War with Russia and the Catastrophe in Ukraine. Let's get to it. Scott, it's so great to have you. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So one of the things we wanted to start with is there's been this huge effort. There was actually just a resolution passed through Congress to try to equate anti-Semitism with a critique of Zionism, the political project. And so I actually wanted to start with you giving us a little bit of a sense of like the origins of Zionism. What even is it? What were some of the different strains and camps and debates even within Zionism and then within the larger Jewish, Jewish community before the foundation of the state of Israel? Yeah, well, um, let's see, you might be able to see behind me if it's back there somewhere. Uh, Coming to Palestine by Sheldon Richman. He is the uh, founding executive editor of the Libertarian Institute. And he wrote this wonderful book. It's a collection of essays that he wrote over something like 20 or 30 years. And it's just a fantastic primer uh, for people to understand. And Sheldon was raised Jewish and Zionist. And then he just learned all about the foundation of the state and how unfair it was and then how unfairly it's all been maintained ever since then. And uh, I, I strongly encourage people to read that. In fact. Um, that all of the virtually all the essays are available online. Chapter one is called "Depopulating Palestine, Dehumanizing the Palestinians," and it's just a fantastic essay. And people can find that at the Libertarian Institute, and and he talks so much of the history of the early foundations of Zionism in there, you know, before the declaration of the state, and in much of Europe and much of America. Uh, all different kinds of Orthodox and Hasidic and whatever different factions of religious Jews, as well as Reformed Jews, all were unanimous, essentially, in rejecting Zionism. It was a kind of feverish ideology of a small sect of revolutionaries, and they had only been so successful at getting the Jews of Europe to come to Palestine. And then, of course, and and they were, you know, they had come by, you know, many thousands and were living there. And there were was all kinds of tension because the plan all along of the Zionists was not to just move there. Like we have Hispanics who moved to the United States, but they have no intention of moving Mexico's border north. They just come to be Americans. You know, right. but the Zionists were coming there and as not openly declaring they were going to create a state, but they were acting like it and moving Palestinians off the land as much as they could, uh, buying land out from under them from absentee landlords in Beirut who'd been granted 
you know, writs by some sultan back when and this kind of stuff. And so there was tension already. But then it was after World War II was when, I guess, a, a couple of million um, European Jews came in a massive flood there, and which quickly led to the uh, oh, an ethnic cleansing campaign, which led to the war of 47 and 48, and the establishment of the state. Now, you know what, like World War II is not quite ancient history, but it almost is. I mean, I'm old and I was born in 76, you know, <laughs> which is, you know, 30 years later. So um, in, a, in, a, in a very strong way, a very, uh, you know, look, all this is subjective and kind of uh, mushy categories and metaphysical ways of looking at things, right? No, this is like concrete terminology sort of deal, but it's just, it. I think there is essentially um, at least the, the real potential for the long-term acceptance of the Jewish state of Israel in what used to be historic Palestine if they would give up the measly stinking 22% of what's supposed to be left of it in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Because as brutal as it was, the Nakba, the, the massive ethnic cleansing campaign, that means catastrophe in Arabic, apparently. Um, it, despite how horrible that was, I mean, imagine the population of Austin, Texas being forced marched like some crazy trail of tears out of our homes mm. and you know, out into the prairie or some kind. Of, it's just nuts to imagine. Um, but as, as bad as that was, it led to essentially a sustainable outcome in the sense that they had created an 80-20 super-duper Jewish majority for so they could have a Jewish democracy. And for many of the early Zionist leaders, they were essentially liberals and wanted to be a part of the West. Not all of them, but many of them did. Um, and, you know, they were very various kinds of socialists and liberals and, and other things. And there was always a hard right there as well, um, a nationalist and religious right there as well. But the idea that they would be a Jewish democracy would mean that they would be, you know, sort of kind of a part of the Western community of nations. Um, and so, and that 20, by the way, that's the Muslims and Christians who are citizens of Israel and live within the, what we call Israel proper within the 67 borders there. And they're treated kind of unfairly like second-class citizens, but they are allowed to participate in the society and all that. But right. see, the real controversy, I'm sorry I'm taking so long to say this, the no, real controversy, y'all, I believe, comes from the War of 67 and the occupations of the West Bank and Gaza. And, you know, after the 48 war, the Palestinians never got their state. That was the UN supposed recommendation, was that both sides would get a state. But Golda Meir made a secret deal with the King of Jordan that he would get the West Bank. And then at the end of the war, Egypt got control of Gaza. So then after the 67 war, which was, of course, no fault of the Palestinians, they were just stuck in the middle. They're innocent civilians occupied by one power or another, and now a new power had taken them away from the old power. So uh, Israel came and occupied them. They also took the Golan Heights, which is often left out because they're not exactly the, the same as the Palestinians, and they're not under the control of the Palestinian Authority, et cetera, et cetera. So they're kind of a little bit separate narrative, but they also were... Um, you know, occupied and seized by Israel in that war. Um, and yep. from Syria, if I didn't say. And so, but this is the thing, is when they took all that land, they did kick about 250,000 more people out of the West Bank, but they kept millions. I think a couple million at the time, and I think it's more like five now. 
And so they took all that land, but they kidnapped all those people. Hmm. Now they're in a situation where either they can give them equal rights as citizens, which they don't want to do because then they would not have their super duper Jewish majority, Jewish democracy. It would have to be just a, a multi-ethnic secular state, and they don't want to do that. And they can't kick them out because international opinion so far has forbid them from going exactly that far. And they don't want to give up an independent state, even though for many years they pretended and promised that they would, because they want that land. And I should be specific by they, I mean the right-wing nationalist factions that control the Israeli government, which does not speak for every last Israeli citizen, of course. But of course. they want that West Bank. They call it Judea and Samaria. And if it takes them a thousand years, they don't care. The Palestinians, one day or another, are going to get lost or they're going to give up and lay down and die or something. But that land is going to belong to Israel. And so I'll stop ranting here, but this leads into the Netanyahu doctrine and, and their deliberate the Likud party's deliberate sabotage of the two-state solution. So let's walk everybody through this a little bit. So in the late 1800s, you have a guy by the name of Theodore Herzl who's sort of viewed as like the father of Zionism. And his argument is like, hey, there's a lot of uh, pogroms going on here in Europe where Jews are like, you know, mass slaughtered on a regular basis in like a, a cyclical sense. And so there were plenty of Jewish folks who were like, we, we can't live like this anymore. Uh, we should have our own state. And so the, the conflict at the time between the different factions appeared to be there were some uh, Zionists who wanted like an officially Jewish state and others who were like, we don't need an officially Jewish state. We just need a state for Jews. That's not like also labeled a Jewish state and like run by Jewish doctrines and it's not an ethno state, et cetera, et cetera. So that was like the, the conflict in in Zionism originally. And then you could see over time, the two factions sort of going at it. And mm -hmm. so at that time, you had the Ottoman Empire controlled uh, the territory of Palestine. By the way, oftentimes this is brought up by Zionists as a way to try to dismiss any rights for Palestinians that, well, they never even uh, actually had a nation state called Palestine. So like that, you know, they, maybe they don't deserve any rights. That's an argument you hear all the time. But the Ottoman mm -hmm. Empire controlled it. And then after that, the British Empire controlled it. And uh, in 1947, you had the creation of the UN, and one of the first things they did was come up with what they called the partition plan, which was the British were getting tired of controlling the territory. They're like, we want out of here. And so the, uh, the UN did this partition plan where they said, we're going to divvy up the land where you basically have an Arab-Palestinian state and you have a Jewish-Israeli uh, state. Now, at the time, I believe Jews held 10% of the land— but they were, given, they were given 55% of the land, and Palestinians were given 45% of the land, even though they outnumbered Jews two to one. So, uh, you know, on the Palestinian side, they're like, this is the worst deal of all time. Of course we're not accepting this. And by the way, who the hell are you, UN? You were invented like two days ago. Why should I take, you know, what you say as, as moral authority? Um, and... From, from my perspective, and interested, in interested to hear your take on this, that's sort of like when the real trouble starts is is sure. 47, because then you had um, Israelis, newly founded Israelis. That's when, you know, the Nakba happened. That's when they started, like, forcibly removing people from their land. And then others, other Palestinians fled and became refugees because they didn't want to get slaughtered like many others were. And then so take us from, like, 47 up until yeah. what you mentioned, which was 67. Well, well and also— <laughs> If you could react to what you will hear from, you know, like the Ben Shapiro's of the world of like, 
they, you know, this partition agreement is agreed from the U.N. And the very next day, the Arab states declare war on the um, on the new newly founded Israel. And that's what leads to the to the war. Mm -hmm. OK, so first of all, I should let you go first, dude. You you had the great prequel there. <laughs> you should have said all that before I, I did my my narrative. I kind of started later. Um, but yes, you're right. Uh, you know, so. Um, and, and this is again all in coming to Palestine. People can can get a great primer on the background of what all is going on here. I think let's start with the point that you made about who the hell is the United Nations to give away somebody's country to somebody else? They don't have the right to do that. I mean, imagine them saying, "Hey, guess what? The San Jacinto is now the southern border of Texas, and everything south of there belongs to Mexico again." Well, they could go to hell. They don't have the right to to dictate that to the people of this land whatsoever. And Imagine if they tried that, <laughs> what the reaction of the Texans would be, right. please. You know, it would it would be horrible because it would probably mean a massive ethnic cleansing campaign of Hispanics south of the San Jacinto, you know, just to prevent any such thing from happening. Um, it's insane to think that they have the right to uh, intervene in that way. And then as the great Daryl Cooper points out um, in his uh, great podcast series about this, the United Nations at that time, you know, people say, oh, the General Assembly voted. Like, hey, it's the democracy of all of mankind really thought this through and thought it was the fairest thing to do or something. Yeah, right. As you said, the thing was brand new. And the only countries who'd even been seated yet were the Western European countries and Latin American friends of the United States of America, who were then leaned on to vote and approve this thing. As Daryl says, not one nation within a thousand miles of Palestine had any say in this whatsoever. And then what did they do? They passed the General Assembly, passed a recommendation because they didn't even pretend to have the authority to declare any such thing as the law of the world. And so they had this recommendation plan, which, as you said, was very unfairly tilted against the Palestinian Arabs who were Muslims and Christians. And I believe I've been corrected on this, but people can look it up and, and fight about it. But I think it's even less. I think it's more like six percent. Uh, I forgot wow. how Sheldon uh, what Sheldon cites in his book, but it was you know somewhere between five and ten percent of the land was owned by the Jewish Zionists, and there had been Jews who had lived there all along, but they own you know very small bits of land in East Jerusalem here and there and that kind of thing. Um, but. The Zionists owned a very small percentage of the land. And here the UN, of course, you know, backed by the Western allies, had quote unquote given them or recommended that they get all the best land. And in a weird, you know, um, not contiguous sort of a way, that of course required what? The ethnic cleansing of Jews in order to make way for the Palestinian state? No, of course not. It required a massive cleansing campaign against Arabs uh, so that. Um, the Israelis could have their state in that place. And as Daryl Cooper also explains, I'm pretty sure this is in Sheldon's book as well, that, and I don't know about the exact date here, it may just be a coincidence, because I know, as Daryl says, that it was when the Israelis crossed the line into the territory that had been designated to be the Palestinian state. It was then that the Arab states invaded. The cleansing campaign had been going on, and the Arab states were sitting there doing nothing about it other than accepting these masses of refugees, who, of course, are coming in telling these very true tales of these horrible, you know, massacres.
massacres and rapes and looting and just absolute chaos at the hands of the Zionists. And so once they cross into the territory that was designated to be the Palestinian state, only then did the Arab states intervene. But as I said, of course, Golda Meir was doing shuttle diplomacy and made a secret deal with the King of Jordan, who wanted to be the ruler of all of Arabia and whatever his delusions of grandeur. And so the first thing they did was make this secret deal to stab the Palestinians in the back so that they could not have their state, because the plan was for one day, sooner or later, eventually, greater Israel. And if the Palestinians have a actual state with a seat in the United Nations and all those things, then that makes taking Judea and Samaria that much and East Jerusalem that much more difficult. They had taken West Jerusalem in the 48 war. Um, but so taking the rest of the West Bank and including East Jerusalem would be that much harder if the Palestinians ever got their state. So they were screwed from the beginning. And, yeah. and, uh, and the King of Jordan got control of the West Bank. And then at the end of the war, the Egyptians got control of Gaza. Another thing that bothers me about the way this is discussed a lot is it's portrayed as these like thousands of year old, like this is just some deep religious hatred that goes back and back and back. But as you just referenced, there were Jews that lived in this area alongside Muslims the whole time. And Crystal, I'm, I mean, look I'm the, sure there uh, were some at, conflicts, but they got along pretty well for that whole period of time. Look, for 2000 years, the history was it was the Christians versus the Jews and the Muslims. And it was the Muslims always protected the Jews from the Christians was how that worked. I mean, if you look at the Inquisition in Spain and all that stuff. So um, and then even, you know, they were it wasn't the Arabs that did the Holocaust. It was the Europeans. It wasn't right. the Arabs who had done the pogroms. It was the right. Europeans that the, the Jews of Europe were fleeing from, not the Arabs. Um, and so it's, it's really only since World War II that the Christians are now the, the uh, sworn protectors of the Jews against their enemies because they've created all these enemies for themselves and need protecting. Um, where does the U.S., you know, where, where does the U.S.'s decision that we're going to, you know, support Israel unconditionally as part of this? I mean, we wrap it in all sorts of like democracy and humanitarianism or whatever language and, you know, the Holocaust being central to that narrative. But what does the U.S. see as our interest in making sure that Israel is there and effectively a client state? Well, I don't think much anymore. There were arguments in the past that they served America's interests in the Cold War because countries like Egypt and Syria were clients of the Soviet Union. So if they're going to beat up on Egypt and Syria and we can sit back and maybe just help them a little bit, then they make, you know, a good little proxy force in limited circumstances. But just look at the entire post-Cold War era where in Iraq War One. Seems like America could have just sat back and had the Israelis with their first world army that we built for them and bought for them, have them go get Saddam Hussein for us. Oh, but we can't do that. They're the Jewish Zionist state. We can't use them as a client state against all these other Arab states. That would be like upping the Palestinian controversy by 10,000. In fact, they had to fight Iraq War One with this giant coalition of Arab states and insist that Israel stay out even when Iraq was firing missiles at them. Not really chemical warheads, that turned out to not be right. But still, he's firing Scud missiles at Tel Aviv and this kind of thing. And Bush Sr. told them, do not retaliate, because if you get in this war, it's going to ruin our whole thing here. Well, that's mm. a pretty weird situation for an empire and a client state to be in that relationship. Same thing with Iraq War II, only worse, because it was Ariel Sharon and 
and Benjamin Netanyahu and their Likud party that did so much to lie us into that war and through their agents of influence, the neoconservatives inside the W. Bush administration to push us into that war. And again, they're no help to us at all. And, you know, Seymour Hirsch wrote a piece in, I think, 04 called Plan B. Well, Israel's plan for America's war in Iraq didn't work out, so now they're tilting toward the Kurds, undermining Bush's policy by tilting towards the Kurds, in which that relationship they've maintained all along here. Um, and so, and then look, I mean, let me see if I can say this without dwelling like too deeply on it. You know, as, as everyone is aware, I believe, America, starting with Jimmy Carter and, and through Ronald Reagan, backed the Mujahideen in Afghanistan against the Soviet Union. In fact, tried to provoke them into invading in the first place. Not that that's really what provoked them into invading, but that was what they were trying to do. So same thing. They wanted to give them their own Vietnam. This is Rambo 3 and all that. Everybody knows that. Ghost wars, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. But part of that, of course, too, was the Arab Afghan army. People from Egypt and Saudi and Syria and Iraq and even Palestine and Kuwait and even the United States and Indonesia and Chechnya and all over, not just Arabs, but uh, Muslims from all over the world, also went in what was called the, the Arab-Afghan army to fight with the Afghan Mujahideen against the godless communists, right? So after the Soviet Union fell apart, Bill Clinton kept using these guys, and he, he backed them in Bosnia, Kosovo, and in Chechnya in the 1990s, even though they had already turned on the United States. And mm. when, when we talk about al-Qaeda, that's basically Egyptian Islamic Jihad merged with the Azam group, which was, uh, he was a Palestinian, but backed by the Saudis, and, and one of the leaders there. Bin Laden took over the, the Azam group. Zawahiri was the head of Egyptian Islamic Jihad, and they merged their thing together. Well, these guys have been attacking us all through the 90s. Starting in 1990, they killed a right-wing rabbi, uh, Rabbi Kahana, in New York City in an assassination. He was um, such a fascist, his, the Supreme Court in Israel had actually banned his Koch party. Um, as he want, he openly wanted to cleanse every last Arab out of historic Palestine, which they thought was going way too far at the time. But anyway, and then they did the first World Trade Center bombing. They attacked our guys in Yemen in 92 before that, and then the World Trade Center bombing then in 95 in Saudi, 96 in Saudi, 98 in the Africa embassies, and 2000 with the coal, and eventually culminating in September 11. And the reason that even though Bill Clinton was backing them in some of their jihads, the reason that he had been unable to buy their loyalty, and they were determined to still attack the United States, was because of policies that are, of course, owned by DC, and these men are responsible for what they do, but which also in large measure were influenced by Israel. And that is, first and foremost, the dual containment policy. When Bill Clinton came in, and man, I hate Bill Clinton more and better than everyone. I'm not trying to apologize mm -hmm. for the guy. In fact, I'm accusing him. But mm -hmm. it's just true that he wanted to bring Saddam Hussein in from the cold, and he wanted to also bring the Iranians in from the cold. The mean old Ayatollah from the revolution was dead. Saddam Hussein had been beaten down in Iraq War I. It was no threat to anybody at that time. And Clinton thought, look, we can bring these guys back into the international system and make them comply and get their oil and whatever. And the mm -hmm. Israelis said no. It was the Israeli government that insisted on the policy called dual containment. They said we have to stay in Saudi Arabia because Israel had just built up Iran for eight years while America was backing Saddam Hussein in the Iran-Iraq war. Israel was backing Iran. Well, then <laughs> America with Israel's, you know, encouragement, B 
beat the crap out of Saddam Hussein's Iraq in Iraq War I. So now Iraq wasn't powerful enough to balance against Iran. So now America, Israel insisted, America has to stay in Saudi Arabia to balance against them both, to contain them both. And that lasted all through the 1990s. And it was um, um, Martin Indyk, who had been an advisor for Yitzhak Shamir, the terrorist from Likud, the, the, the guy from uh, the Stern gang, right, was... Uh, um, and Martin Indyk had worked for him, and he was the founder of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, the APAC spinoff. And he gave a speech at, at WINEP announcing the dual containment policy. And so that was Osama bin Laden's number one, first and foremost motive for turning against his clients, uh, or I guess his uh, whatever you call it when you're the client of the other guy, um, yeah. his patrons, the United States, um, was the presence of these combat forces on the holy Arabian Peninsula of Saudi Arabia. And even, I don't want to argue about it, I mean, even Paul Wolfowitz admitted that this was even one of the reasons for Iraq War II, was so we can move our troops out of Saudi into Iraq, because huh. they're, yeah, which great, great plan, Paul. But anyway, that was, uh -huh. you know, one of the reasons he said. And then the other one was Israel's... Um, war in Lebanon in 1996, which, of course, the ongoing occupation of the Palestinians. But Mohammed Atta, the lead hijacker, and Ramzi bin al-Sheib, his best friend and co-conspirator in the thing, they were inspired to join the war against the United States when Israel invaded Lebanon in 1996 with Grapes of Wrath. And then when bin Laden put out his first declaration of war, they read that and said, we want to join this guy's fight. So here's some Egyptian engineering students studying in Germany, answer a call to action by a Saudi hiding in Afghanistan, asking them to get revenge on the United States for what Israel was doing in Lebanon. And wow. instead of telling the truth to the American people about that, they said they hate you because you're free. They hate right. you because you love your mama. They hate you because you were born white. And, and, can't and, now, they're, that, can and now they're panicked mm -hmm. that Zoomers are reading Osama bin Laden's letter to America and posting <laughs> right. about on TikTok. Like, that's the root of the problem. Exactly right. And look, in fact, what was the overreaction about that was, oh, my God, these women are somehow being persuaded that bin Laden was right, which I don't know if that's really true because I'm not on TikTok. But I can tell you this. These Egyptian engineering students studying in Hamburg, they thought he was right. And they were willing to crash their planes into our towers over their commitment to his cause, over what this foreign nation was doing with our money in our name and implicating our civilians who were then killed by the thousands. And then, as, as I mentioned previously, what happened? I swear to God, you can look this up. It's the New York Times. Like, you would think maybe this is an urban, an urban legend. It's the New York Times from September 12th, 2001. Wow. They called Benjamin Netanyahu and interviewed him. Said, so what do you think? He said, it's very good. Wow. I mean, I mean you wow. know, it's not very good, but it means it'll generate a lot of sympathy for us. And wow. then you guys will work with us. And then what they do, his men, the neocons, who are closer even, and J.J. Goldberg wrote all about this in the foreword, the neocons in America were much closer to Netanyahu than they were to Sharon. It's just that Sharon was the one in power there. And he was more of an Iran hawk and Netanyahu more of an Iraq hawk, although they were both both. But the neocons in America were essentially, well, Bush, of course, wanted Iraq, and Netanyahu wanted Iraq, and that was their game and and they exploited the september 11th attack people young people watching this wouldn't believe 
the level of cynicism with which these Incredible. neoconservatives exploited the 9-11 attacks to make every man, woman, and child in this country believe that somehow Saddam Hussein had done it and that we had to go to war before he did it again. And so when you talk about the Netanyahu doctrine, what do you mean by that? And how is that important to the moment we're in now? Great. So, okay, this starts especially with Ariel Sharon when he was still in power in 2005. This is another major, um, you know, uh, Likudnik talking point, Ben Shapiro type talking point that, oh, the, the wonderful and magnanimous gentleman, Ariel Sharon, decided unilaterally to just give the Palestinians their own state in Gaza. And they mm -hmm. got nothing rockets in response. Well, come on. And what they did was they ended the... Uh, the colonization of Gaza. They closed down the settlements and they pulled the Israeli Jewish colonists out and the literal military administration on the ground there. But they just pulled them out to the perimeter. So if the Palestinian Authority, based on the Fatah party in the West Bank, if they're trustees in a minimum security prison, essentially, I mean, the PA was created by the United States and Israel, not by we, the people of Palestine. Right. It was it's a foreign occupation regime. They are trustees in this prison on the West Bank. Well, right. if that's the case, then in the Gaza Strip, Hamas are essentially the strongest gang that took over after the warden and his men retreated to the perimeter. But the occupation never ended. The prison is still a prison. It's just now it's run by the Crips or the Aryan Nation or whatever, right? The meanest gang in there took over and and people should understand about Hamas that they're just about like one half a click to the left of Al-Qaeda right like these guys are very bad guys they're Islamists and they are terrorists they have very bloody hands uh from not just recently but from previously in their uh, merciless atrocities against innocent civilians so um they are what they are and that's a great talking point for the Likud and that's how they like it. So first of all, everyone jot this down or type this into your extra browser window here. Type in Sharon and then formaldehyde and it'll come right up, okay? It's an advisor to Ariel Sharon. His name is Dove Weissglass. It's D-O-V without the E, D-O-V Weissglass. And he says, listen, the whole point of the disengagement from the Gaza Strip is to freeze the peace process. It is to end the possibility of a Palestinian state, because what we're essentially, we're just dividing and conquering them. And he says, we are putting the peace process in formaldehyde, right? Mm -hmm. The ultimate preservative for a dead body, right? Um, and so this was their clever trick so that they don't have to deal in good faith about a Palestinian state, which would require them giving up the West Bank, which again, the Gaza Strip means less to them than getting that West Bank one way or the other. So Ehud Olmert was in charge in the meantime. And d while he was in charge, because Sharon, I think, had his stroke in late 05 or early 06 or something. Oh, it must have been in 05. Because his right-hand man, uh, Ehud Olmert, came in. And he's less of a, a hard-ass and an ideologue than the other two, Netanyahu and Sharon. But still, he's essentially from the same Likud uh, family there. And... Um, under him, see, it was Bush years. And Bush and Connolly's arise said, this is the global democratic revolution. The Palestinians must hold elections. And it's, and oh, and Arafat had died. People argue about whether the Israelis assassinated him or not. I don't know exactly. I don't, th I don't know if anybody knows for certain. There was a, an official inquest by, I forgot, 
Norway or some European state that said that they thought he had been killed. But anyway, hmm. um, so Arafat's dead, and his uh, kind of successor, Abbas, the same guy who runs the PA now, Mahmoud Abbas or, or um, Abu Mazen, as he's called, um, uh, took over. And Bush and Rice said, nope, you have to have a free and fair election because how can you expect the Israelis to deal with somebody who wasn't freely and fairly elected in this new era of wonderful democracy that we're building? And so they forced him to have an election. But meanwhile, the Palestinian Authority, of course, was completely corrupt and horrible, and they had been completely unable to deliver on their promises for the Palestinian people who were still occupied and were not getting their state. That They had accepted the rule of the PA for a very short time and until it would turn into a government that they would control, which it never really happened. And so the PA had been, you know, completely humiliated and emasculated, and they held this election, and to Condoleezza Rice's amazed surprise, Hamas won. However, we got to stipulate, and this is so important because it goes more to Likud talking points about collective guilt, popular sovereignty, and the collective guilt of the people of Gaza and all of this. In fact, Hamas only won a plurality of the vote, and even then, they didn't win a majority in any single district. They hmm. only won a plurality in the election. Um, and even if you zoom in, they didn't win a majority anywhere. But they did win a majority of the seats in the parliament. And this meant that they had to form a coalition government with Fatah. And they did. But then what happened, and I urge people to read this, it's such an incredible article. It just, the W. Bush administration, man, I could write the whole book, could be just about those guys. But anyway, um, it's called The Gaza Bombshell. It's in Vanity Fair by David Rose. And I know Vanity Fair sounds silly or whatever. It's a great piece, okay? They paid him to write it. He wrote it. You read it. And look, man, guess what? He has quotes in there. I had forgotten this for so long until I reread it. He has quotes in there from David Wormser, who is the guy who had written the clean break paper for Netanyahu urging regime change in Iraq back in 96 when Netanyahu was prime minister the first time. And he had then become Dick Cheney's foreign policy advisor. First, he had been the leash around Colin Powell at state, uh, preventing Powell from preventing the war. And then he went to work for Cheney. And now here is Wormser all upset and spilling the beans and accusing Elliot Abrams of, truthfully, of, of launching this attempted and failed coup d'etat against Hamas. Again, there was a coalition government. The idea was maybe we can coax the more moderate leaders of the political factions of Hamas to, to you know, get more power and marginalize the bad guys. What the Israelis do? Immediately, they cut Fatah off. They started persecuting Fatah for losing the election, cut them off from their tax revenue, and, in other words, undermining their support in a way that only helped Hamas. Then, that was at least in the West Bank, then they tried to arm up Fatah in Gaza in order to launch this, you know, bloody putsch not even a coup, but like a putsch against Hamas, which completely backfired because they found out about it and ran the PA right out of there and got all the weapons. And it was only then that um, the Israelis and, and Hamas, you know, Israel freaked out and reacted to Hamas now having total control over the Gaza Strip. A cynic might say they engineered this deliberately. I don't think that's true. It looked like a great buzzing, bumbling confusion to me, the way it all kind of came about. But then... You know, again, Netanyahu is a much more cynical guy, I think, than Omer, and not that Omer is any angel, as the New York Times might say, but um, 
Netanyahu, when he came in in, in 2009, well, I should say they, they laid siege in 2007, a brutal siege against the place. And it's not this way now. You'll hear people say that they're like, well, it is maybe now, but this hasn't been the history the whole time. But you will hear people reference the, from the WikiLeaks that we want to keep them hungry but not starving. We want mm. to keep them on a diet. And that stuff is true. Those are two different uh, quotes from two different sources there. One of those wow. is the WikiLeaks. I forget which is which. But you can find both of those. Hungry but not starving. And we want to keep them on a diet. Now, they loosened up the restrictions after that. That was in the original first couple of years of the thing. So it wasn't quite that brutal the whole time. But, again, this is a prison. Hamas is not the government of Gaza. They are the strongest gang that took over a prison or or took over a reservation and but the israelis have i mean look at what happened on october 7th they cut through what this massive prison fence topped with razor wire um their borders are entirely controlled their airspace is entirely controlled it's filled with drones buzzing all day and night they're they're uh, only allowed to go uh, three miles at most out to sea and their fishing boats might just get shot and sunk anyway and um so they've been living in essentially um, all these people who are mostly all refugees in the first place. I mean, quite frankly, as Max Blumenthal has said, they are there because they are born with the wrong religion. That's yeah. why they're there. That's yeah. why they're locked in this prison. It, that's the, the crime that they did to deserve this. Uh, otherwise, if they were Jewish, they'd just be allowed out of their pen and it would just be part of Israel and it'd be yeah. fine. So so yeah. let me interject here, Scott. So to, sure. to summarize for everybody 2005 ariel sharon takes over he's to the right he comes after a guy by the name of uh ehud barak and it, prior to sharon there were like attempts at a peace process and at moments it seemed like they were pretty close but they just couldn't get it past that uh, five yard line so ariel sharon comes in and he is similar to netanyahu He's uh, pretty extreme and you, as you point out what he did was he took gaza from what you could call like an internal occupation with settlements. He changed that to an, an external occupation where it's like a total embargo and blockade. And then he turns around to the rest of the world and goes, hey, I gave them, you know, exactly what uh, they wanted. They got See? the freedom, right? Yeah, so hey, if anything bad happens now, you know, blame them, it's on them, it's got nothing to do with us. But as you point out, it was a divide and conquer strategy where what you're doing is separating the West Bank from Gaza and not having the same leadership in both, that's where you get, you know, the rise of Hamas, for example. But this is something that uh, many people probably don't know, is that uh, you would think that Hamas, oh my God, the eternal enemy of, of Israel, but Netanyahu is on the record, even recently, as recently as 2019, talking about, well, we want to prop up Hamas in Gaza. Why? Because that makes it look like these people are crazy. That you know, you can't make a deal with them. There's they're, no partner for peace. They're they're flat out terrorists. Yeah. There's no partner for peace. And so tell everybody why they would do it. Why would Netanyahu, why would the Likud party, why would Israeli government officials, why would they want to prop up Hamas who are a terrorist group? What's the main uh, reason why they would do that? Yeah, I mean, it's just as you say, it's the most cynical thing in the world. They don't want to have to negotiate in good faith for an independent Palestinian state, because that would mean that they don't get to keep the West Bank. And, you know, sure, they want Gaza too, I guess, but again, East Jerusalem and the, the rest of the West Bank of the Jordan River is what's so important there. So it's, you know, Americans, maybe we project our sort of feelings onto everybody. I guess everybody does this, right? The projection bias are like, well, if I was Israel, I would want peace. But if, 
you were Israel, no, you wouldn't. That's if you were over there in their position. But what the Israeli government wants and the factions, again, the individual men who control the right-wing factions, who control the state there, they want that land. And so, so they would rather have divide and conquer with minimal terrorism for 100 years than give up that West Bank. That's the answer. And people can go, and it does sound kind of extreme, and the burden is on me to prove it, and so I have. And you can go and look. Just go to antiwar.com slash Scott. It's my most and recent article. It's I did the uh -huh. research. My guy, uh, Connor Freeman, did the writing there. He gets full credit for that. And we explain in there in detail, and we have a solid 10 or dozen quotes, quote after quote after quote after quote from Netanyahu, from his finance minister, Bezalel Smotrich, and from many other representatives of the Likud party praising Netanyahu for his, quote, Machiavellian, brilliant strategy here. And they all say the same thing. It's as clear as it could possibly be, okay? The reason we want to support and even bolster Netanyahu's words, bolster Hamas in the Gaza Strip, is so that we don't have to negotiate a Palestinian state with the Palestinian Authority that currently rules the West Bank. And so, in other words, they are the perfect little terrorists to simply say, look, you don't expect us to deal with them. The Israelis have all these wonderful focus-grouped cliches. We have no partner for peace. Mm -hmm. See the alliteration there? You're supposed to believe it because it's got two P words in it. And isn't that impressive? Yeah, no <laughs> rolls off the peace. tongue. It's yeah. so easy to memorize. It must be true. And then, and then they point and they go, look, you expect us to deal with these guys? And then most Americans, we don't know the names of all the much more moderate and reasonable Palestinian leaders who are in prison right now who yeah, could dead. possibly like run the place instead. And so we're left like, geez, I don't know, I guess. There's nothing but Hamas to run the Gaza Strip. And what do you expect Israel to do? Let Hamas have an independent state with its own standing army? Which, by the way, I'm not saying what's right and fair. I'm just not normative. I'm descriptive here. Nobody in 40 years of this has said that when there's an independent Palestinian state, that they'll get to have their own standing army and independent foreign policy. It always has been state minus, and quite frankly, the Palestinians have always accepted that. The yeah. Palestinians, the, when, when it was Yasser Arafat or whether it's Mahmoud Abbas, they have never said, hey, we want a standing army. That's not even on the list, guys. It's never even been on the list, okay? The, the, the discrepancy is where's the border going to be? What are the land swaps going to be? How much of East Jerusalem do the Palestinians get to keep, or are they banished to the suburbs right. and what about the right of return for refugees right otherwise well, of course they have an internal police force but nobody says that they get to have a standing army that can build up in opposition to israel nor does anyone believe that israel's first world standing army would allow that to happen and again if you go back to that article again it's at antiwar.com scott it's called netanyahu's support for hamas backfired and you can see the arrogance with which they talk about this. Netanyahu says they will never deal, which, of course, is the point. But he says, we control the height of the flames. That's right. In That's other words, right. yes, of course, it's dangerous to keep, I don't know, 
a lion in a cage in our backyard of our suburban home. But he is in a cage, and we do have a chair and a whip, and we're sure it'll be fine. And because we know what we're doing. And then that way we get to tell the neighbors across the street, we have no partner for peace in our backyard. Look, it's a lion with giant teeth. And so, and and they thought that that was the perfect equilibrium because, and this gets, sorry, to the second part of the Netanyahu doctrine, which is making these normalization deals with the Sunni Arab kingdoms of the Gulf and a couple of others, Morocco and Sudan as well, without doing a Palestinian state for the, or, or equal rights and citizenship for the Palestinians. And so these Sunni Arab states had always said that only when the Palestinians get their state would they ever normalize relations with Israel. But Jared Kushner, Donald Trump's son-in-law, figured out that, nah, you got your price. What's your price? And so for Bahrain, it was they want F-16s. For UAE, they want F-35s. For Sudan, they get a little bit of debt forgiveness. And for Morocco, Trump, quote-unquote, recognized their seizure of the northern part of the nation of Western Sahara. And Mm. with those bribes, and they were working on uh, Saudi Arabia. Now, in fact, just, uh, I believe it was one week, it might have been two weeks before the October 7th, atrocity, that Netanyahu went before the United Nations and crowed that he had won, right. that the Netanyahu doctrine had won out, and that he had proven that, of course, he puts it in the most cynical way that, oh, we no longer will let the Palestinians sabotage and thwart peace. What he meant was he got away with making these normalization deals without having to give them their state or citizenship and freedom and so and Scott, then he this holds is up when, a picture right he holds up the picture of the map you might say from the river to the sea That's and there right. is no west bank there is no gaza right. it's just so all what's he saying there what's it's he just saying all there? israel he's saying, right he's it's saying, over we won that's what he's saying yeah you will not be citizens of israel you will not have independence you will just live on your reservation under totalitarian foreign military occupation and you'll either learn to love it or you'll just have to get down on your belly and surrender but you're but and this was his message in the un speech was listen up palestinians no one's coming for you and so scott is is the netanyahu doctrine now dead because obviously he wasn't able to control the height of the flame i mean the first thing that the um hamas terrorists did was to take some off-the-shelf drones effectively and mm-hmm. blow up some of this technology that they'd put so much faith in. Um, this is, you know, part of why he was called Mr. Security by his supporters because this was the guarantee. If you put me in power, yeah, I'm kind of a tough ass and I might be a corrupt bastard, but I'm going to keep you safe. Um, that obviously failed. So what does that mean for the future of the Netanyahu doctrine and what they may be looking to accomplish um, with this current war on Gaza? Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's a very good question. And, and if I could just rewind one step, it goes to the motivation of Hamas to do what they did on October the 7th. And I'll, I, I like to refer people, in fact, this is one article ago at antiwar.com is called, it's all about provoking your reaction. And this is from Saul Alinsky, from Rules for Radicals, page 74, he says, in all asymmetric political activity, the action is in the reaction of the opposition. So if you look at Al-Qaeda, there are 400 bandits trying to take on the American superpower. How do you do that? 
Well, you give George Bush a horrible crisis to cynically exploit and drive the American empire right into the ground is what you do, which was his strategy and which obviously worked. The, as anyone on earth would agree, the high watermark of American power and influence was 2003 when he blew America's entire wad on that horrible regime change that only benefited his rivals in Iran. It's completely crazy. Um, but so in this case, what was Hamas trying to do? And quite frankly, they were trying to get Netanyahu to do exactly what he's done. And just like Osama bin Laden, just like the Democrats, they think the price is worth it. Are, a bunch of, are even thousands of innocent Palestinians uh, in Gaza going to be killed in Netanyahu's reprisal? Self-defense, nothing. Self-defense was over by the 8th, okay? Yeah. This is the reprisal. And now, are thousands going to be killed? Yes, but Hamas had clearly calculated that the resulting controversy, not just the reaction from Netanyahu, but the counter-reaction from the people of the world, from the leadership of Hamas, and for that matter, every Sunni and Shiite militia in the entire Middle East. Every potentate, you know, the Ayatollah's got to beat his chest. He's independent from the empire over there in Iran, so the Shiites can all talk real tough as the defenders of Palestinians. All the Sunni kings are, of course, humiliated and embarrassed because they're all the sock puppets of the empire and can hardly say anything at all about it. Meanwhile, 100% of their populations um, are, you know, absolutely incensed about what's going on. So, uh, you know, Saudi's signature on the Abraham Accords is now in severe doubt. There's a real question over the next couple of years of what happens to the ones that were already signed. And, you know... Um, you have, look, I mean, as you guys would would, uh, would recognize, of course, uh, being news hawks as you are, that ever since Trump came into power and the subject switched to this Russiagate hoax and then to COVID and then Ukraine, that, that Palestine has been on the back burner. I mean, hell, yeah. even when the war was in Libya and Syria and whatever, Palestine is always sort of a side issue. But they had really been put to the back of everyone's attention. And what Hamas said was, well, nuts to that. We're not going to be, you know, again, Netanyahu said in his speech, essentially, lay down and die, Palestinians. You get nothing. And they said, no, forget you, dude. We'll fight. And so they did. And then, of course, and, and I'm not playing this down. People are so binary in their thinking. I'll just tell you, to be perfectly frank, an extended family member of mine was killed by Hamas in the atrocity of October 7th. And I've always been against terrorism, Islamist and otherwise, backed by the United States and our allies and otherwise. Um, I have no sympathy whatsoever for what they did. I'm not excusing anything. I hope people do understand, quite honestly, it's uh, a description of their goals, their ends, and their means. And look at what they've done. I mean, it's absolutely horrifying. You know, the pro-Israel side, they have a point that Hamas is to a great degree responsible for what Israel is doing to those people. Now, the good thing about responsibility is it's not a quantity, it's a quality, so you can divide it up however you want. And Netanyahu and his men are also responsible for every single action that they take. But so is Hamas. But that was the reason that they did it, was to create this reaction and they did and then but now to your real question was about netanyahu now well all the polls say 
once the war's over, he's got to go. Uh-oh. Well, that's a huge incentive for him to keep the war going, of course. That's right. Um, but I saw, you know, a poll said people prefer Benny Gantz right now. He's a former general, and he was, you know, he bragged about reducing Gaza to the Stone Age in the War of 2014, if that's any indication of who he is. Um, but I guess... And these are the quote-unquote moderates in Israel That's, now. Yeah, I mean, Yair Lapid is also just sounds just like Netanyahu when he talks about it, and he's supposed to be the opposition. Right. Well, you know what? Like honestly, in a in a very weird and ironic way, because we all know about our founders' warnings about standing armies, and we know our own experience with our own standing armies. But in a way, I mean, they can be very ignorant and crazy, like along the lines of Mike Flynn or something like that. But you know, to a great degree around the world. Uh, a lot of times the generals are just more professional and less ideological than the civilians in charge. And where you have, you know, especially in the W. Bush years, you had the military tell Bush, no, we're not going to Iran. And just forget it, Mr. President. We're not doing this. That was at the beginning of 2007. And, and you know, Admiral Fallon later said, the commander of CENTCOM said, over my dead body. Am I doing this? You know, and when when Obama switched sides in the Yemen war, which was the most horrible thing that he ever did on a long list of horrible things he did. But our current secretary of defense, Lloyd Austin, protested and was upset that, wait a minute, we've been helping the Houthis target and kill Al-Qaeda. Now we're going to switch to Al-Qaeda's side against the Houthis? Are you crazy? All and, about Saudi Arabia. That was to, help, to back Saudi Arabia. Yeah, exactly. So Anyway, to get back to the point, I, I guess there's there's a way to imagine that Benny Gantz, as ruthless as he is, as bloody-handed as he is, just is not as ideological, is not as, um, as uh, you know, tied to these, you know, Netanyahu's father is this, like, famous and hugely important Likud party ideologue and, you know, a contemporary of Begin and uh, Shamir and some of the worst of the Likud terrorists from back in the day. In fact, you guys, I'm sure you're familiar with the candid camera, the, I guess, accidentally left on camera footage of Netanyahu in 2000 talking yep. about how he had gotten over on um, Bill Clinton at the Y River uh, negotiations in 1996 and all that. But at the end of that, the lady is saying, geez, Bibi, what about all these compromises, blah, blah, blah. And he says to her, he's like, listen, do you know who my father is? Mm. Let me tell you, I went and talked to my father and I told him what I'd done and he told me I did the right thing. It's always better to get what you can rather than not in the name of wanting more. So we did what we could and yeah, we had to give up Hebron, but we'll get it back someday. I don't know if he says that, but he's pretty that's the idea. Blinded, I think. Well, I mean, that's a, there was I'm sure you saw there was just this leak of uh, what his case was to the his Likud party members of why they should keep him as head of the party. Mm -hmm. He's like, number one. I've known Biden for 40 years, could basically play this guy like a fiddle. I'm adding my own piece there as well. Mm -hmm. um, I know how to manage American public opinion, and I am the guy who will guarantee there will never be a Palestinian state. So, you know, you have the Biden administration. Their position is, OK, after the you know, after you're done bombing the hell out of Gaza, then what we want is for a revamped Palestinian authority to take some sort of governing role. Um, what you're getting out of the Netanyahu government, and especially from, you know, Smotrich and people like that, Ben Gavir, is, no, we, wanna, we want the final solution. We want the total ethnic cleansing. We want to push these people into Egypt. We can use Egypt's debt as leverage to try to force them to help us with our final ethnic cleansing campaign. Uh, Netanyahu basically at this point has refused 
to lay out any sort of plan for the quote unquote day after. So what's your assessment of what, you know, what it will look like or what he's likely to do? That's a great question. I, you know, it's, they have this barely plausible deniability, but it's, it's just enough, isn't it? That, no, it, it's not the complete destruction of Gaza. We're just going after Hamas. They don't explicitly say, I don't think that like, oh, don't worry, we're definitely going to let everyone come home again. But they kind of try to imply it. And then we yeah. have all these statements, mostly from former government officials who seem to be doing a coordinated Donald Rumsfeld type propaganda campaign, but who are proposing the total cleansing of the Gaza Strip. And there was a leaked intelligence document, although I was informed by an Israeli um, uh, war vet that I know that... Um, the agency that put that out is it's not the Mossad. It's sort of a side project, kind of an internal think tank kind of a deal. Maybe it was a good trial balloon, but not official policy. I but was going to say, what, it, what they say, it seemed like a trial balloon. And there was even some reporting that it was like intentionally leaked into these sure. activist circles to put it out there and, and see what people thought about it. Yeah. And then what they say, they said, we want to push them all into the Sinai Peninsula. And right. then they, would quite obviously then never be allowed home again. And, you know, I, I believe it was yesterday, it might have been the day before yesterday, that um, Smotrich, the finance minister from the Religious Zionist Party, said that in the West Bank, there are two million Nazis. In other words, all Palestinian civilians, they're the Nazis of Germany, of the Holocaust, and they must all be, what, put in boxcars and shipped off to the east for the Lebensraum. If you'll buy sure. that, you buy anything, I guess. Wow. Let me interject here. So let's talk about the West Bank a little bit. So everybody knows Gaza is different from the West Bank. Um, you have Hamas ruling Gaza. You have the Palestinian Authority or Fatah ruling the West Bank. But to me, the strategy of the Israeli government in the West Bank is really interesting because my understanding of it is you have these illegal settlers, oftentimes very religious with like religious justifications taking more and more land in the West Bank that's Palestinian, sometimes literally like bulldozing houses and saying, hey, this is mine now. There's that very famous, there's that video that went viral, this very famous video of a guy from Brooklyn who's stealing somebody's house and saying, hey, look, if I don't steal it, somebody else is going to steal it, so why don't you just get out now and let me take it? So you have these illegal settlers taking more and more land in the West Bank, and there's a little bit of a wink and a nod. It's not like official Israeli government policy, but like they obviously don't do anything to stop them from getting the land. And right. then what's going to happen is, this is, of course, the speculation, is that once you get enough territory and you make up enough of a percentage of the West Bank, then you turn around and say, well, what do you want me to do? I mean, we're already 90 percent of the population here, so obviously this should be part of Israel proper. And that's when you get the annexation. Is that your view of the situation as well? Yep, that's what they call it, establishing facts on the ground. And mm -hmm. hey, if it takes 100 years, fine. This, whatever. I mean, they're in a hurry, but they'll also wait if they got to. So um, it's a huge dilemma for Israel for their ruling party and for their nation that they got all these people. What the hell are they going to do with them? They can't just kill them all. They can't, I mean, can they? Maybe in the middle of an American war with China, Israel could build a railroad and ship them all to Jordan or something. I don't know what it would, what the world would have to be distracted with for them to get away with cleansing millions of people out of the West Bank. And so their government has just painted their civilization into this ridiculous corner. It's just crazy. And, and look, the counterfactuals right there, Yitzhak Rabin, and as you said, Ehud Barak, they tried to negotiate over his state. In fact, there's a great book called The Truth About Camp David by Clayton Swisher about how 
it was really Bill Clinton's fault for botching that negotiation. And and then they all turned around and blamed everything on Arafat, said he was given the keys to the whole kingdom and turned it down, which is such a lie. Um, and, the, and Bill Clinton even promised Arafat he wouldn't do that. Don't worry, Arafat, I won't blame you. And then he goes out there and he blames Arafat. Mm. Um, but so... The counterfactual is there, that they could have dealt in good faith with these people, given up a Palestinian state. That doesn't mean that all the refugees from around the, the world would be able to come back to what we call Israel proper. They would have, and this was already basically agreed upon in the, in the negotiations. Israel would recognize the right of return for Palestinian refugees. In practice, that would mean that they would allow a couple of 10,000 to come home. The rest would be allowed to go only to the West Bank or the Gaza Strip, the new independent and prosperous Palestinian state, and they'd have to settle for that. And quite frankly, if they did have to settle for that, at least that'd be something worth settling for, not being under permanent military occupation. But listen, so this whole two-state illusion is so important right? This is, I don't know who coined this phrase, but it's brilliant. Somebody said that what you have here is two sides negotiating over a pizza while one side is eating it. And mm -hmm. so this is what we had really since, really since 67, because, or, or I think 67, maybe 68, the UN Security Council said, get the hell out, right? And so that would have been allowing for their independence right then, get out of the occupied territories. Then it said in 79, they promised to begin negotiations to uh, create a Palestinian state there and then completely undermine that by invading Lebanon and going after the PLO there. And, you know, the, the Palestinian side was not perfect at that time. It was really the Israelis who botched that promise. That was part of the Camp David Accord where they made peace with Egypt. So they promised they would work on a Palestinian state. Then they never did. Then at Madrid, Bush Sr. tried to push them that way. And then at Oslo, Bill Clinton got them to agree on what was called the peace process. And that was over the next few years, we're going to turn the PA into a real sovereign government. And these will be the land swaps and these will be the borders and this will be the right of return and these will be the the capital in east jerusalem and all that will get hashed out and then what happened was a Likou, uh, uh, netanyahu fan murdered yitzhak rabin and it wasn't a real state but it was they called it state minus but it was pretty close and there were some israeli settlements would remain and there were going to be some land swaps and this and that it was going to be full of compromises but could have happened um and so I, I, that's the real tragedy of it, is anyone could see how they could have negotiated and, and had a deal then. Now look at the situation. After the absolute horrific atrocity that Hamas committed on October the 7th, um, and then the just almost unbelievable reprisal by Israel in the Gaza Strip in the time since then, obviously everyone's position has hardened. And, and all of the, the, the hard feelings and, and recriminations and everything have just been reinforced and all progress has taken a few steps backwards. But um, ultimately, oh, and I'm sorry, I, what I wanted to say there was, uh, 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 pardon me, it, it, it's important to understand that in, in 2020 was when Netanyahu officially announced that the two-state illusion is over. We're not pretending anymore. And he gave two statements that year where he said that Israel will always control all of the land from, as they say, the river to the sea. All the land west of the Jordan River, he said, will be under their security control. You can find the quotes in the Washington Post and, and also in my article as well at antiwar.com slash Scott, where he just says 
look, there will never be a Palestinian state. Forget it. And so, and of course, it's not even in question whether they're going to get citizenship and equal rights and representation in the Knesset or anything like that. No right. way. Even though 20% right. of the population of Israel get along just fine, we're supposed to believe that all the rest of the Palestinians are these ruthless terrorist animals who couldn't possibly be let in, when the right. reality is they just don't want to dilute their Jewish super-duper 80% right. majority. And yeah. so this is why then, Crystal, in 2020 and 21, Bet Salem, Human Rights Watch, and Amnesty International all finally threw their hands up and said, okay, I guess we're not pretending anymore. We as long as we were pretending, we were pretending. State. Yep. That's right. So it is an apartheid state. And people can find, if look, I know people get so emotional about this topic, but look, Jimmy Carter said, you guys are in danger of creating for yourselves an apartheid state, an untenable situation for the long term. Does anyone think that Jimmy Carter is driven by a hatred of Jews? For God's sake, he might have been our worst president, but he was our best ex-president, and he's clearly a bleeding heart type who cares about the Palestinians and the Israelis and was saying, you guys, you're on a bad path. You're drunk. Give me your keys before you get in a wreck. That's all he was doing, was caring right. for them. And then Ehud Barak, who we already discussed, the former prime minister and defense minister under Netanyahu, and Ehud Olmert, who had been Likud and then became Kadima with Sharon. Again, these are guys from the Israeli right. They, well, no, pardon me. Barack is from the Labor Party. But but um, uh, Ehud uh, Olmert was from Kadima. And, and they both also said that we're facing an apartheid state, an untenable situation here. And one more. You know who else said we're facing apartheid here? Mad Dog James Mattis. Hmm. The butcher Never knew of that. Right, wow. the the the, um, the Secretary of Defense under under Donald Trump, in when in in 2013 he was trying to support John Kerry's very half-hearted attempt at negotiations, um, and and insisted that this is important because otherwise the Israelis are left in the possession of this untenable apartheid state. So that's why I think, and and I should do a better job of this too. But this should be incumbent on all people who are trying to get through to others who who we I think rightfully uh, have reason to believe are very clouded in their information on this subject. Right. That seriously, if you truly care about Israel and the Israeli people, then you would want them to get rid of the Likud as fast as possible. The the nationalist right wing in that country, just like under W. Bush here. Uh, with the help of the pro-Israel neoconservatives. They are driving Israel into the ground, or they're driving it into this very untenable position where they're going to end up having to give up the West Bank and Gaza some harder way rather than an easier way. And and really, the, all they have to do is, is figure out a way to try to negotiate in good faith, to work with um, intermediaries, and partners like the Turks and the Qataris and the Egyptians and whoever else they can to deal in good faith and try to find a new way forward. No one has to accept the sovereignty of Hamas over a single you know, acre of land anywhere in Palestine. That's a total red herring. Obviously, a much better solution can be found that would exclude them from sharing power there. Yeah, I think that's all very well said. And it is, I mean, you can't even wrap your head around with the amount of civilian death and horrors and destruction of everything in northern Gaza, the number of new radicals that you are creating at a great detriment 
to the safety and security of Israeli citizens in this current war. Um, Scott, thank you so much for taking some time to break this all down for us. Um, people should definitely go and check out your writings over at antiwar.com. Anywhere else that you want people to follow you or find your work? Yes, I'm at scotthorton.org. I got 6,000 interviews going back to 2003 for you there. And I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute at libertarianinstitute.org. And it happens to be our fun drive time right oh, now there over go. there at the Libertarian Institute. So, um, and also, if you want to read my best work, it's enough already. Time to end the war on terrorism. Fantastic. Thank People you, should Scott. should definitely check that out. We Scott, appreciate it. great to talk to you today. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Thank you both. All right. So Scott Horton there. That was a very interesting conversation. Yeah. Um, He's got a wealth of knowledge. I really wish uh, everybody would familiarize themselves with at least the basic facts of what's going on over there. You know, it would bust up some some myths very quick. Yeah. There was a, um, a comment from Chuck Schumer. He just gave this speech on anti-Semitism and he was like, learn the history. And he doesn't, I don't think he means actually learn the history. Right. Because... He means learn, <laughs> learn the bench of hero. Like, learn the, the propaganda. Yeah. It's more like, more like what it is. But, you know, it is, it is remarkable though, the generational divide in the view of this conflict, because for young people who, you know, mainstream press, like they are not cable news watchers, they haven't been captured in that same mindset and also didn't grow up with this like cold war legacy ideology also they see it very clearly i don't see it as like oh it's so complicated i can't possibly understand what's going on because while the ins and outs of the details of course are complicated like the basic facts and dynamics are pretty simple to wrap your head around yeah yeah i mean i think that's true um that uh, read that poll. That, do you have in front of you that poll that uh, you were just talking about mm. the generational divide Here, between like the, the approval? It. Yeah, it was a new okay. Gallup poll that came out on um, support for Israel's military action. And of course, young people are the ones who are buying it the least. Yes. And then older people are more... So overall, it's basically split 50-50. Which I thought was crazy. I thought it'd be much lower than that support for it because covering this day in and day out and giving all the information. I yeah, feel like everybody knows all this stuff, right? And it's like, no, they have a cartoon version yeah, of it. it. That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, I actually am impressed that it's 50, it's basically 50-50. 50% say they support Israel's military action. 45% um, don't support it. I'm kind of surprised that it's even 50-50 just because the like long time propaganda and just instantaneous. We all stand with Israel and you've got the Democratic president, and all the Republicans on board with it. So and to, I actually to think 50 isn't that bad. You actually just swayed me a little bit because to be fair, in the wake of the war on terror at the time, it was like 80 or 90 percent support yeah. for George W. Bush and for the war. Right. And like this is to be 50 50 this early means that don't it's not going to be that long until it's at like 17 percent support. Right. You know what I'm saying? So to get to the um, age breakdown. Yeah. OK. So if you're 55 and older, you are likely to have a terrible view. Um, 60, Shocker. 63 percent say they approve of the military action Israel is taking. And they also have no idea about like what's actually happening. Let's be clear. Yeah, they're watching yeah, they don't know. CNN at best. They don't know that over 90% of the Probably dead are more like civilians. Fox News over 8,000 kids are dead. When was the last time Fox News told you over 8,000 kids have been killed by Israeli have, bombardment? Have they ever? No. Have they ever told nope. you that? No. So that's 55 and older. 35 to 54, it's 50-50. 50% approve, 44% actually disapprove. Go down to 1834, though. It's a whole other story. Only 30% approve, 67% disapprove. So Young it's people. very clear. There's also a very clear um, racial divide 
white people way more supportive of Israel. 61% approve um, among people of color, 64% disapprove. So it's almost like totally reversed in terms of support and um, disapprove. There's also a decent party divide. So um, there's no real class or uh, college education divide, by the way, which is kind of interesting. But anyway, Republicans overwhelmingly supportive. Seventy one percent are like, yes, we love what I Israel's doing, murdering all these can't babies. Deal with these people. Forty seven percent of independents and independents are genuinely split. It's forty seven percent approved, forty eight percent disapprove. Democrats, even though it's a Democratic president who was back in all this crap, sixty three percent disapprove. So Biden very much at odds with the Democratic wow. base over what Israel is doing right now with our blessing and support and, you know, no red lines and here's all the weapons you could possibly want, no strings And gee, I wonder why he's hemorrhaging support among young people, Who, among Arab say. Americans and Muslim Americans. It's like, it's, they're so stupid. They're so stupid. Yeah, Nate just, Silver had some dumb tweet the other day that was like, well, yeah, it might not be all that popular what he's doing now, but any other thing he'd do might be less popular. What? It's like, shut the fuck up. What? <laughs> Go shove your That's such a bankrupt. data nerd I mean, shit up I, your listen, ass. I know he doesn't do, like, moralizing. He just sticks to the numbers. But what a, a morally bankrupt. Is this genocide polling to... well? Let me look at the genocide poll numbers. <sighs> like, fuck off. Yeah, that's fuck. why people get kind of sickened and disgusted by that. Just, yeah, like, numbers-focused horse race yeah. view of politics that totally strips out any sort of morality or principles, values, humanity, etc. Yeah, facts. All right, guys, so if you like the show, please do us a big old favor. Go to um, Substack and sign up for Crystal Kyle and Friends. We don't talk to any advertisers. We never have. We never will. And so your support is definitely much, much appreciated. Five bucks a month gets you the interview, all the interviews and debates and all that stuff a day early. Uh, you could also sign up for free if you'd like, and then you get uh, right to your email box. You get the audio version of the podcast a day later. So having said all that, that's all we got for you all. Have a great weekend, and we will talk to you later. Peace.